The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Marina Abramovich interviewed a tour of a new Franz Hals exhibition and an in-depth look at a painting by Peter Paul Rubens. As Marina Abramovich draws huge crowds to the Royal Academy of Arts in London, I interview her about the show, the first ever exhibition dedicated to a woman artist in the Royal Academy's main galleries. Also in London at the National Gallery is a remarkable survey of the paintings of the 17th century Dutch master Franz Hals, which will travel next year to Amsterdam and Berlin. I take a tour with Bart Cornelis, curator of the National's incarnation of the show. And this episode's work of the week is Peter Paul Rubens's Three Nymphs with a Cornucopia of around 1625 to 1628. In the collection of the Prado in Madrid, it's one of a number of major loans to the exhibition Rubens and Women at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London. Amy Oruk, one of the curators of the show, tells us more. A reminder that you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, Brush With, the latest episode of which features Sarah Lucas. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in 2020, the Royal Academy in London was due to open a major survey of the work of Marina Abramovich, only to have to postpone it due to the COVID pandemic. But now, at last, that show, or a version of it, is open. Though there have been important shows of women artists in other spaces at the Academy over the years, not least those dedicated to Philida Barlow and Tessa Dean in the past decade, Abramovich's show is, as I mentioned earlier, the first ever show of a woman artist in the historic main galleries. It covers her entire career from the performances in her native Belgrade in the early 1970s, through her years in Amsterdam, where she collaborated with the German artist Ulai, to more recent decades in which she's achieved global recognition as a founding figure of performance art and installation, not least in her 2010 performance The Artist is Present at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, where she now lives. As she completed the installation at the Academy, I went to meet her. Marina, this retrospective of your work has been organised for so long now, it's been postponed and so on. How do you feel now that you're finally on the brink of opening it? You know, I was just looking into some documentation when the curator, Andrea Terzia, first came to New York to look into my archives. This was 2017, which is a long, long time. It's full seven years. And then, you know, COVID came, and then after COVID, it was still lots of restrictions of audience because this retrospective is not retrospective. I hate to call it retrospective <laughs> because seven years ago was retrospective. But right now, it's a really thematic show that every room has its own concept, what it's about. Like we're having the rooms calling limits of the body. We call back to nature. We call coming and going, communist era, so on. So that really I'm giving this perspective to the public to see so many different works that normally in other shows they will always see only performance. But I'm not just doing performances. I've been doing so many other other things. And uh, I was really grateful to COVID because this show will be really retrospective if they open during the COVID time. But I had all this time to rethink and with Andrea, we stripped everything to the zero. Even the catalog was ready already. Yeah. And we start all new again. So the show right now is probably, honestly, the best show I've made in my life. What probably going to react, I have no idea. But I've done my best. This is what I can say. <laughs> that's really fascinating because even the title has changed, hasn't it? Because it was called Afterlife. I've noticed that that seems Everything's to have been changed. removed. Every- you know, right? All change, 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 change. And you know, I'm so emotional. Yesterday, I was looking at this, this very big part of the show is life element. It's 42, you know, young performance artists performing my works. Mm. And yesterday, we was looking into the, some of the rehearsals. And this is incredibly emotional for me. Just the fact that actually you can see work 
through the being life, looking, being done through the different bodies, different perspective, different type of energy, and still living in the space, it's very, very touching for me. Because, you know, this will happen anywhere we die, but I'm still alive. So that's a really different sensation. And that life element will make this show so different than any other show Royal Academy ever made. It will, absolutely. Tell me about the re-performance of your work. Because on the one hand, so much of your work is about you and your body and your duration and your ability to withstand extreme forces. To what extent can you expect that of the people that are re-performing the work? First of all, I always think of future. And I always think of the body as something that moves, change, and get from young to middle age and from middle age to old and finally die. So I had this in my mind when I already many, many years ago made a piece called Seven Easy Pieces in Guggenheim, mm. yeah. which I actually proposed to reperform historical pieces. And this was already looking to the future, which I'm facing now, because I understood that so many historical pieces are just kind of gray photographs in the books. And then the artists at that time who live and never give actually permission to reperform the work. So I was thinking, I'm going to do this. And I reperformed Joseph Boyce and Gina Pane and Vito Conchi and Bruce Nauman and also my own work. And uh, with this different, you know, retrospective that, yes, we can re-perform the piece. If you ask the artist for permission, pay for permission, or the, the foundation who represent him. And then you can put your own energy, your own charisma, and your own changes, but always show original work. So this I've done already, and this was my preparing the ground for what is happening now here. Yes, you know, I'm 77. All of these pieces that I perform in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, artists present and a proform 65. Mm. I'm not able to do this, but I don't understand why young generation could not actually experience these works and the public witness this, the new versions of the work. I mean, you can have a Bach and you can still go and see techno Bach concerts. Why not in the same way this work? To prepare it with a score, the re-performances, how do you, if you like, train the performers to First do... First of all, I have my own institute who made the audition and I teach people to do that. And so I have the whole casting system to cast the people who can do the work. We choose them. Then they've been taken to the outside here in London for the workshop, which is without eating, without, you know, talking and doing exercises in really to understand what means time, what means presence, what means long duration of work. Then I bring them here. They've been, you know, here also done repetitions and they're ready to do that. And still they're not going to be never ready till they really confront with real public and really endurance, because the show is closing 1st of January. They made it longer. Normally it's 12th of December. This is the longest show too. Mm. So all of these elements is, you know, preparation is very necessary. And then even, you know, even with all this preparation, they still have to tell their own story because their body is not my body. Right. And of course, one of the other restrictions on how you can re-perform is this building and the safety rules and so on about how you can go about doing that and of course certain works of yours could never be re-performed because you could put yourself in that danger but you cannot place other people in that danger no no and then also this is a re- lots of restrictions because all the pieces that we done in 70s they could never be performed now because they're just different rules and we have to really synchronize and see what we can call healthy compromise you know we still in poderabilia we are doing you know as as it was planned but we still have another exit for the wheelchair and the people who doesn't want to have this experience. So this is something that we never had to deal with this in the 70s, but now we do. Absolutely. But of course, as well as that, when you do have a restaging of imponderabilia now, the idea of two naked bodies providing a doorway in 2023 is is different again from when you first performed it, right? There are all sorts of freighted associations that, in, in terms of the freedom of bodies today that are totally different from then. Do you think it sort of animates the work in a different way? You know, but also it's all to do with the gender and many different things and the race and colour of the skin and so on. And uh, when we performed this in MoMA, this piece in Poderabilia, we had two men, two women, we have uh, transgenders, we, we have the African-American, we have everything. 
everybody. But then when Ulai passed away two years ago, uh, his foundation requested that this piece particularly is going to be performed original, in, as it was performed in 1977, which was men and women. And this was something that I respect, this decision, so we are doing that way. But for my work, I don't care. With my work, we are mixing everybody. Right, that's really interesting. Does it make you, when you look back now at those performances, particularly the ones with Ulai, I'm thinking about Rest Energy, this extraordinary piece with you and the bow and arrow, the arrow pointing at your heart. Does the fact that you cannot now re-perform so many of them make you shudder almost at, at how no, much... No, I, I just go forwards and look into new my work I'm going to do, and we take reality as it is. But this interesting thing about rest energy, you know, I have a, one book that I'm very proud I'm in it, and the book is called The 150 The Worst Critics Ever Made Made. <laughs> it just published recently, and I'm in this book, and exactly that piece, Rest Energy, it was terribly reviews in this book with the Irish Times. It's fantastic to read these bad reviews because sometimes you have the worst critics for the really pieces that actually you are the most proud of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you must be tremendously proud of that legacy now. And I know that when I last spoke to you, you said that you were reformulating the show a little bit with Ulai in mind. You mentioned about how you bore in mind the instructions of the foundation in terms of how you perform in Ponderabilia. In what other ways have you, in a, in a way, kind of brought Ulai more into the show? You know, first of all... Uh, the limits of the body. I mix his and our work together in a big space with Poderabilia. Then we have another work called Absence of the Body, which actually we show the Polaroid's works we never showed before. The two vases who present the, him and me when we could not perform. There is, a, of course, a saying goodbye, Great Wall of China, but there is a real little screen together with the text Art Vital and that little screen show our life together, that we live in the car, that we went to the so many deserts and crossed so many cultures and there is also the memory of him that we had a not easy life but wonderful, wonderful life at the same time and and you know, succeed to make important work, and this is all in one wall. You know, the, the homage to him right, right now. Absolutely. You mentioned about the influence of other cultures and visiting deserts and so on. Repeatedly in your life, have there have been these moments where you've travelled to certain locations? There was an extraordinarily important time with First Nations people in mm. Australia, for instance, Tibet, and so on. Tell me more about why it was important for you to make those journeys and how it's influenced the work. You know, to me, i never been fond of working in a studio. I always feel a studio is a trap, like you are going to the post office and then you have work. And then ideas came so much kind of constructive from your mind. I always think the great ideas have to come from life. So you have to make life interested. And I remember in the end of 70s when actually... Everybody stopped. Performance was not any more popular, and everybody stopped performing. Galleries have nothing to sell, museum nothing to show. It was huge pressure of the artists to start making paintings, to start making, you know, objects and so on. And Ula and me looking at each other and say, "But we're not going to do that. What we're we going to do? Let's go to deserts." Let's go to deserts because everybody went to desert. Moses went to desert, Muhammad went to desert, Jesus went to desert, Buddha went to desert, and they all went as a nobody, came back as a somebody. It must be something interesting desert. So we went to every desert possible, to Sahara and, and great, great Australian desert and, and red desert and Tibetan area. I mean, just like every desert. We was going there to see, you know, to look for the emptiness and to look for the being there in nature. And the nature is the one who really give us the most um, the inspiration for the work. And then we came back with the works who were being performative and never went to the painting or objects like other people. So now looking back, you know, when you ask me the first question, how I feel, you know, I'm showing now here in British public 55 years of my work, uncompromised which I never compromised to the market or anything. I never changed. I never went to, to do things I didn't believe in. And it's pretty hardcore. I done my best to, to make this show. It's up to you to accept it or not. Right. I wanted to ask you about a particular work that you made with Ulai, which I think made a very important distinction between you as artists, which was called Night Sea Crossing, which was one where he had to get up, he could no longer withstand it. And it said something about the duration that you stayed with that piece. 
of course, the famous piece is the, is the Great Wall of China and there's this meeting and, and this parting and so on. But it seems to me that with Nightsea Crossing, that that split, in a, if, you, if you like, was there between you as artists. You know, there was a distinction between you. But this was exactly the piece when we went to desert. We came with a piece that we don't need to move. And then this piece was performed over five years, 90 days. And then when Ulai left and we split, you know, the table became half size and uh, the Ulai was replaced by the public. And then I performed at once three months. So that was something that just the piece changed into that. But right now we are... With the artist is present in, in MoMA, yeah, yeah. But we are actually planning, the Ulai Foundation and, and me, we are planning in 2026 to make very big show of just Ulai and my work. Right. Because there are so many things. We never have enough space to show everything. But there will be really big emphasis of the, of the Nazi crossing, but also lots of Polaroid works and some video installations that nobody saw it because we always show like a kind of highlights and we always forget the rest. But this is going to be really very, very in detail, showing the 12 years of collaboration, including the car we live in. Right, fantastic. You said about 55 years worth of work there. And you also talked about this idea of theme rather than chronology. It seems to me that's really important that you can show works that are 55 years old alongside works which you've made much more recently. And that in a way, it shows a consistency in the work, that your themes have been consistent right since the start. But also show that I, I really, this whole exhibition, mixing the work. I have the space coming and going, and the work from coming and going, the small photographic work is from 1962. And then there I show the work from 2023 in the same room. And because, you know, it's really important to recognise when you're working with ideas, artists never go linear. They always actually think it's spiral. So sometimes you have really very, very interesting ideas when you're very young, and then you go back to the same idea much later because you learn wisdom, you see them differently, you wanted to actually have another interpretation of the same thing. So this is really important. This show is really more like a spiral thinking than anything else. And, and of course, in those rooms, those very particular rooms that the Royal Academy has, the work is so different from, let's say, uh, an Amsterdam gallery from the 70s. Or a... I am so completely in panic because this show in March is going to Stedelijk Museum. Right. And Stedelijk Museum, the new wing, is built by Rem Kohlhaus, which is a literally big black box, not with the Baroque ceilings, not with the gold, not with the parquet floor. We are talking completely in wide environment. I have no idea how we're going to transfer because this show was really built for this space too. Right, that's interesting. So you built it with that kind of ornate architecture. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, tell, tell me about how that, because of course the work in essence is, the performances exist in a certain form, but in what ways are you responding to the particularities of the Royal Academy space? You know, because they have such an enormous tradition and such a history, and the plus this fact that in every main space was women, you know. No. So you, you're dealing with all history behind you, you know, and history in the front of you. So to me, it's, it's why I'm very impressed to say, how we're going to actually conquer the space. Because before, you know, Anthony Gromley, he made it's huge cage. I mean, he also built pieces. But I never have these monumental works because I never build objects, you know, in that sense. So what I have, I have the performances. So the video, we are all large over the size images that we have to kind of embrace and create that dynamic relation with the public and I hope it's going to work. One of those video pieces will be Balkan Baroque, which is one of a small number of works where you're sort of directly referring to a global incident. There's a recent work that you've done, which is called Crystal Wall of Crying, which was in Kiev, which has gained a whole new kind of momentum because of the war in Ukraine. It's a monument who's going to serve two the biggest disaster of human history, Nazi, and now the invasion of Ukraine. It's incredible. You make one and then, and then, oops, it's going yeah. to be for two. Yeah. You know, and I hope it will survive. This will be incredible. I still, it's completely untouched and people cleaning it and using it. Right. And it's really, really like, you know, incredibly emotional about that. So people now see it as a sort of monument, not just for a particular historical or something incident, but past, a contemporary... But right, you know, what's happening right now, yeah. Right. In terms of how the Balkan Baroque piece 
influenced your work? It seems to me that it was a kind of as much of a landmark piece as some of those early performances, in kind of a new form of gesture that you could make in terms of how you were displaying Rock your work. Rock and was really it's a deep shame for the war in my own country. And it was something to do with my mother and father mm. and blood and killing and uh, and also the story, which is how to explain how it's possible the neighbor killed the neighbor after 25 years, 30 years living together. So I went to interview the man who cut the rats for 35 years to explain how he make wolf rat out of the rats and how he trained the rats to kill their own family and this became synonym for the old work but then I wanted to create something that is transcendental for any war anywhere that we have the war in Syria we have war in Ukraine we have war our humanity is repeating and history is repeating and it's always war somewhere and artists have to create something that they can serve this message and not just for one war I can't talk to you without asking you about this recent moment in your life. You spent so much of your life creating works about death and then suddenly you've had a near-death experience in your own life. Tell me more about that and how has it made you respond to your work in the aftermath? You know, it's it's so funny that I've been so much looking into that, you know, the, the idea of life and death, working with the body and the polarity of life existence. And I made, uh, with Bobby, the life and, and death of Marina Branch with my own funeral. Yeah. I made uh, Seven Deaths Now with Maria Callas, which we performed in November mm. in opera here. I created skeletons, I carried the skeletons, I've done all of this. And this is something that I'm really working and presenting to the public with my own power. But the lung embolism was something unpredictable, I could not control, and I almost die. And it really, experience brought me completely away from dying into incredible state of happiness. So now all my work is going to be about humor and and it's going to really deal with happy notion of, of the existence and enjoying life every day. And this is so interesting because I also had the theory that actually artists could not work from happiness. There's to be always tragedy because every single history of art is full of t- tragedy and then war comes, you know. And I wanted to prove wrong. I want to see how I can make work from happiness. And this is my time now. Marina, thank you very much. Thank you. Marina Abramovich is at the Royal Academy of Arts in London until the 1st of January 2024. It then travels to the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam from the 16th of March to the 14th of July next year. The opera she mentioned, Seven Deaths of Maria Callas, is at the English National Opera in London from the 3rd of November until the 11th of November this year. You can hear my interview with Marina during the Covid lockdown in our episode from the 8th of May 2020 and a conversation with Tate Modern's Catherine Wood about Ulai following his death in 2020 in the episode from the 6th of March that year. Coming up, Franz Hals and Peter Paul Rubens. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The British Museum is finally going public on its strategy to recover the 2,000 antiquities that have been stolen from its collection in the past few years. A webpage dedicated to the recovery operation launched on Tuesday. The museum also revealed in a statement that 60 items have now been retrieved and a further 300 have been identified and are due to be returned imminently. No details are given about the recovered items, but it's possible that some of these may be returned via the perpetrator of the suspected theft or by outsiders who blew the whistle on it. The new webpage does not record details of lost items, the museum says, but merely the types of objects that are missing, including photographs, so that the public will be better able to identify whether they might have come in contact with any stolen items. Do listen to our episode from the 1st of September to hear the background to the British Museum thefts. San Francisco's Asian Art Museum is suing Y Architects and Swinerton Builders over a $38 million museum edition designed by the firm and built by the construction company. The museum announced the lawsuit in a press release on Monday, saying that the legal action follows a claim filed against the museum in 2021 by Swinerton. The museum says that the cross-complaint is for damages due to breach of contract, as well as indemnity and defence against claims brought by Swinerton, and comes only after efforts to resolve the matter amicably. It adds that the 
project was delivered late and as originally constructed failed to meet even the minimum museum quality standards, such that the museum had to pay what it calls the significant cost of identifying and repairing these issues. According to the museum, the builder claims that it's not responsible and points to what it contends were incomplete and inadequate plans prepared by the architects, while the architects deny the claims and state that the builder failed to follow their designs and basic standard construction practices. And finally, curators at the Royal Collection in the UK have attributed a painting to the 17th century Italian artist Artemisia Gentileschi. The work, a version of a frequent Artemisia subject, the biblical story of Susanna and the Elders, is thought to have been commissioned by Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I of England. It throws light on the artist's time in London in the late 1630s. The painting had been installed at Hampton Court Palace outside London for over a hundred years, attributed to French school and in very poor condition but researchers found a brand linking it to Charles I's collection on the back of the canvas during conservation as part of a research project tracing paintings scattered across Europe after Charles I's execution in 1649. You can read all these stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This October, coinciding with the 20th anniversary of Freeze London, Christie's is launching This Is London, ever-changing, forever captivating, a special season of the Auction House's sales series of 20th and 21st century art, celebrating the unique energy of the British capital and its undeniable influence on artists past and present. Expect an exciting calendar of auctions, exhibitions and events featuring masterpieces spanning antiquities, Rembrandt prints and post-impressionist works from the collection of Sam Josephowitz, one of the greatest collectors of our time. The auction lineup continues with highlights including Jean-Michel Basquiat's 1982 masterpiece Future Sciences vs. The Man, Paul Arago's monumental Dancing Ostriches from Walt Disney's Fantasia and works donated to be sold for the Museum of West African Art Rainforest Gallery and the Nigeria Pavilion at the Venice Biennale 2020 with contributions from artists including Yinka Shonibari, Kahinde Wiley, Lakwena McIver and many more. The pre-sale exhibitions will open with free entry from the 6th to the 18th of October at 8 King Street in St James's, London. Find out more about this unmissable moment on the International Art Calendar at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, three of Europe's most august art museums, the National Gallery in London, the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and the Gemälde Galleria in Berlin, have collaborated to stage a major exhibition of Franz Hals's paintings. With more than 50 works from major collections around the world, it's the most comprehensive survey of this great artist of the Dutch Golden Age for a generation and the first to feature the Wallace Collection's famous painting, The Laughing Cavalier, since the Wallace lifted its ban on lending works to other institutions. The National Gallery's version of the exhibition opens this week and I went to the gallery to talk to its curator Bart Cornelis and you can see images of the works discussed on the web page for this episode and on our Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Bart, before we start looking at the paintings, could you give us a sense of Franz Hauser's life? It's a long life apart from anything else yeah. and it's a fluctuating life yeah. um, but also his, re- his posthumous reputation as well because that too fluctuates. Yes, he leads a very long life. He was born in Antwerp, in what we today call Belgium. Mm. But like so many other people in living in Antwerp at the time, especially after the fall of Antwerp in 1585, they moved north, either for religious reasons or for political reasons, or indeed for economic reasons. So there's a steady stream of immigrants coming into Haarlem because it was a very prosperous town. That's where Frans Hals is very young. I mean, he wouldn't have remembered probably even, but that's where he ends up and he and his family, and that's where he becomes a painter. But the early life of Frans Hals is actually shrouded in mystery because um, we start here in the first room with two pictures uh, that are among the the earliest that we know by Frans Hals, 1611, 1612, we're not entirely sure when. But anyhow, at that point, Frans Hals is about 26, 27 years old, which is very late to appear on the scene for any artist. They usually make their mark much earlier, so, and we have no idea really what went before this. Right. Um, and so it's a bit of a mystery where Frans Hals learned to trade. Well, he was a pupil of Karl van Mander, almost certainly. There's really no trace of that in his work. And also those two early works in this first room um, are so accomplished that you can't really think of it as a work of a budding artist. You know, like Rembrandt, when he's in his very early years, you can still tell he's trying to find his way. Right. And he's really not all that great. And the Rembrandt that we all love and admire comes a lot later. Yeah. So, but you don't have the finding 
he's where he pictures for health at all. We don't. And we do know that he enrolled in the Guild of St. Luke only in 1610. That's mm. fairly late. Uh, but how he earned his money or exactly what he did. And it's all the more uh, astonishing if you think that he's such an incredibly virtuoso painter. Yeah. We all sometimes say he was clearly born with a brush in his hand. <laughs> the facility with the brush is extraordinary. Uh, as you can see, for example, on this second painting here with yeah. the man clutching a, a, a straw basket, uh, which is so freely painted. And that's still relatively early, 1616. That's only a few years mm. after those. And it has already all the hallmarks of that. And uh, in answer to your question about uh, when was Franz Hals rediscovered, it is this kind of brushwork that, of course, was sort of rediscovered, if you want, yeah. in the 19th century by the Impressionist generation who realized that there had been someone two and a half centuries earlier who was doing something that they tried to do themselves. Uh, so Franz Hals' reputation fluctuates in the sense that, you know, he's very well known in his own time. He's clearly a sought-after portrait painter. And then even up to his very long life, even till the end, he is asked to, to make portraits, even though by then the style of portraiture is already changing. It becomes far more elegant and fine. 18th century, that's all even more so. You know, this kind of portraiture wasn't uh, fashionable. Right. And in the 19th century, when the, but especially someone like Théophile Touré, uh, He's a critic, the right? The critic, yeah. Um, uh, who also rediscovered Vermeer. Théophile Touré is one of those figures in 19th century uh, history who is incredibly important when it comes to Dutch art. He, was an, you know, he lived in exile in the Netherlands and started discovering all this art. But he was also of the same generation as, as, as the Impressionists. And in fact, he knew some of, some of them. Right. So uh, it really reflects a modern development that Franz Hals all of a sudden becomes such a hot item again, yeah. as it were, which eventually culminates in the pictures hanging next door uh, when uh, his pictures start to fetch a lot of money. Right. And when the, when the Lord Hartford pays an extraordinary amount of money, I can't remember now how much it was, but a lot. Something like 51,000 francs or something I, uh, incredible. Yeah, <laughs> and, and for the Laughing Cavalier, which of course is, um, has become famous partly because of that. You know, he paid such a huge sum of money for it. Right, so it sort of it helps bring Howells back to the public eye that, that money's on that well, sort of scale well, has been exchanged then for Then as now. I mean, if, as soon as something makes money, people are all of a sudden get interested. Right. But of course, the actual rediscovery of Franz Hals happens just slightly before that and was well underway when this picture was sold. Right, yeah. Uh, hence, otherwise it wouldn't have been so expensive. Right. And Rothschild is the underbidder and, and so on. Yeah, you the know, National it, Gallery it, tried it, to get it. it yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's, yeah it's, a, it's a juicy story. Right. And, uh, but uh, that in itself is more of a symptom than the cause, if you see what I mean. Right, gotcha. As you say, it's in this second room and you see this extraordinary flourishing in this room. Even when he paints this, it's only sort of another 12 years after the first pictures that yeah. we know of him, this, the last Cavalier. It's extraordinary. You mentioned about that sort of virtuosic quality. It's bravura brushwork, yeah, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, but also one of the things I wanted to ask about was it's almost an angularity to it. Yeah. When you think about Rembrandt and yeah. Velasquez and others, yeah. there's a sort of softness in there as yeah. well. But he's, it's an extraordinary drawing within the mark making. Well, uh, yeah, he draws with paint. And uh, it's very telling also that Franz Hals, as far as we know, I mean, they may have been destroyed, but there are no drawings by Franz Hals. And it makes sense because he's, in effect, drawing in paint. And he works a la prima, so he works straight onto the panel or canvas. Uh, I mean, he would have laid out the composition a little bit with mm. some brown underpaint and then went straight at it and, and works wet in wet. You know, the paints are flowing into each other and the angularity is simply because he uses an almost type of, almost like a hatching style yeah. with his paint. And that again is like drawing. And so th there's a, a slight mystery around how, how, why there are no drawings at all because you would expect someone who can paint that well also to be a good draftsman he probably was but we simply have no idea no. what that would have looked like is it right that there's an x-ray of the laughing cavalier which basically reveals nothing it's just it's just he's, he knew his composition he yeah. did it i mean the black. same is true for the for for example the painting opposite the famous picture from the Rijks museum known as the meager company mm. technical researchers found out that he laid out the whole composition Franz Hals, in brownish sort of outlines and then just went at it yeah, I mean, in this case, it's interesting because that picture is actually finished by another artist. Right. Uh, because uh, Franz Hals couldn't be bothered to finish it, essentially. <laughs> he wanted them to come to Harlem to him, right? Yeah. That's right. He wanted them to come to Harlem uh, rather than the more practical solution of uh, Franz Hals coming to Amsterdam. For this Amsterdam militia piece, uh, very rare, anyhow, that uh, an Amsterdam militia company would have asked uh, a Harlem painter you know, to, to come and paint them. Mm -hmm. Because usually you would ask a painter from your own town. It's a marker of his fame. 
that he was asked to come from Haarlem to Amsterdam, uh, they soon regretted it uh, right. because he wouldn't come again <laughs> and, uh, and ask, can they not come to Haarlem and, and so on. It's very, actually a very interesting, lively back and forth. Not, we don't hear Frans Hal speak, but almost, because the, the go-between quite clearly is conveying the words of Frans Hals right. in reply to what the patrons <laughs> have said and so on. I love that. I mean, because I know that story, yeah. I'm going to say, oh, yes, of course, the, the left-hand side yeah. of the picture is much more brilliantly Hulls, painted yes. than the right-hand side of the picture. And it is an age-old game to try and decipher what right. is Hulse and what isn't. I mean, there's one example. as a seated man in the front with a, uh, with a blue sash hanging down, uh, and he's gesturing with his right hand. In the left hand, he holds a lance. Yeah. And I think that is a pretty clear illustration of what is Hulse and what isn't. I, the hand there is incredibly good and phenomenally sort of... Yeah, it's holding the lance. It's, it's sort of turned around upright. That, that is imitating by an artist who ah. knows he has to do something like that, right? but isn't quite... Uh, so even they all say, well, the left bit is by Frans Hals, but even there, he must have left certain bits unfinished. Right. And then you. Peter Korte had the unenviable task of trying to make it all work again. I have to say, he does a brilliant job, but it is true that... There are passages of painting here, uh, talking of angularity. The boots and... Yeah. The, oh, my God. Uh, this is the left-hand figure of the painting that, that we're that talking about. That is entirely Hals, yes. And that's the one that famous, of course, uh, had Van Gogh. You know, he writes very enthusiastically about that in a letter to his brother and says, yeah. I stood still and I couldn't move. So he was so moved by that one figure. You yeah. Know? While we're on the subject of Van Gogh, there's a great quote from another letter from Van Gogh where he talks to Theo and he says that Howells used 27 blacks. Yeah. You really feel that in this room, don't you? You, you do, know. you do. And of course, it's, it's not true either, but, it is, but it, the, the remark itself is interesting. Um, and, and 27 blacks, of course, they're, in the end, all just gradations of black yeah. mixed with white. And as a colorist, even though we're talking about black, yeah. that was something that, of course, uh, Van Gogh uh, really admired. Matisse talked about Manet's luminous blacks, and I think Manet learned a lot about yeah. black from oh, Howells, too. Oh, he did, too. and of course, Manet looked at Frans Hals, and we know that because he copied uh, elements of Frans Hals and things like that. So he was a great admirer. The great thing is that in the exhibition we have also this one here from Haarlem. I've just learned that it may have spent a week in Amsterdam or maybe a year in Amsterdam. <laughs> Um, but it has never left the Netherlands since 1627. When How amazing. So this is the banquet of the officers of the St. George Civic Guard. Yeah, yeah. and this, um, is, this is his masterpiece really in its genre. Uh, I mean, whereas that is nice enough, this here... <laughs> is really where he goes to town in the dynamism of the sort of, you know, how you put yeah. a bunch of people together. You know, you have to imagine that a lot of these um, early uh, group portraits in the 16th century, a long tradition for them, are pretty dull. They're they just are, a number they can of, be like, a, like men in a boardroom, effectively. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. So you, you have to bear that in mind when you look at this and realise that all of a sudden, apparently, he could also do this. And Frans Hals does that. And, and, and the nice thing here is also that the central figure, the one who holds his glass upside down... Yeah. Uh, is actually the same person as we see over there. Uh, um, very nice. Uh, so on the wall facing the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. and he's there uh, in a separate portrait, three-quarter length, and we've reunited him. He's from Cincinnati. And then on the right is a picture from private collection uh, that is his wife. And, and uh, me, the man is called Michiel de Waal. Uh-huh, brilliant. And then you've done that a lot, haven't you? Let's go to the next yeah. one because you've, done, you've paired lots of pendants and repaired them, rather. And, and you know, th- there's a sense in which you're kind of reuniting pictures and, and establishing that knack that Hal's had to capture not just the people but their warmth for the people around them. So yes. you did, it's going to the room that's of family better. paintings. Yeah. 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 That's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think this is one of the things that we find difficult perhaps to realise just how new that was at the time because... We are so used to photography that this is possible, that you can capture a moment, yeah. that we forget that it's actually not at all normal to actually capture that moment. And Frans Hals was the first really to do that. Paints people smiling and laughing, incredibly difficult to do. Uh, here's the only double portrait that we know by Frans Hals from the Rijksmuseum, uh, where we see uh, Isaac Massa uh, together with his wife Beatrix van der Laan. And it is just the most extraordinary depiction of, well, love and marriage. Yeah. And uh, this is almost certainly painted in the year of their marriage in 1622. And um, if ever there is a winning smile in the history of <laughs> art, then surely that must be her, right? Yeah, right. I mean, the, and, and yet it looks so 
easy in a way. Yeah. But it must be fiendishly difficult to get that right. You know, smiles become grimaces. Yes. If you don't get it right. That alone, if you start showing people's teeth, and even Franz Hals, of course, occasionally goes as far as that. He shows mostly in the genre pictures, which he did in the 1620s and 30s, where he paints types. There he actually goes so far as to show their teeth. Now, that's completely a no-go area. Right. Especially the state of teeth in the 17th century. That, does, that doesn't help. But, the, but what I'm saying is that teeth really turn any kind of smile or laughing in a picture into a grimace. Yeah. Unless you're called Franz Hals. Right. And he does it so incredibly well. And there's a wonderful casualness as well about yeah. the way, like her arm on his shoulder, yeah. the way he's kind of chatting to us as, as it, you know, we can imagine we're Hals and, and they're posing and, he's, and, and, and Isaac is chatting to us as he Hals is, is making the and, and, and he is clearly in the midst of something. And then she has her arm resting on his left arm and her hand is sort of very floppy, like we do. We, yeah. all, do, we all do that when we lean our, our hand on a bench or something. Yeah. And uh, she does it, in this case, on her, on her husband's arm. And, of course, that also signifies the affection that they hold for each other, which is also alluded to in all sorts of other details in this picture. You know, there's, there's a vine going round the tree. Um, there's uh, uh, ivy growing on the sloping ground here. Those are both plants that cling. And that, of course, it's not difficult to understand the symbolism there within the context of a marriage portrait. There's a thistle, a very traditional symbol of fidelity. And the nice thing is that we have him again here next in this picture. And what a stunner this is, my word. He is beautiful. Uh, This is a picture from Chatsworth. And, you know, it needed treatment before we could show it, really. Mm. And they uh, agreed that we could treat it here at the gallery, and we have. And it looks absolutely splendid now. sparkling, isn't it? Especially the sleeve, his golden sleeve. Extraordinary, yeah. yeah. And and, and a very interesting pose, because here for once is someone standing with his arms across his chest. That's unusual. But because we treated the picture, we could find out so much about the picture itself that we actually could understand the reason why he holds his arm, and then probably too much to go into now. <laughs> right, but yes, he's, he's, he's defiant, and there were once symbols that reflected why he was defiant. That's right, yeah, and, and yeah. so there's a reason why, you know, and, and even though we'd like to think that maybe Franz Hals was a proto-19th century artist and uh, painted someone in that pose, it's a pose that you actually want to associate with Degas, right. painters like oh, that. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and, but actually, it is defiance in this case. Okay. We, we know that now. Isaac Masser was, one, was a wealthy merchant, yeah. um, but there's a room of wonderful portraits and group portraits of ordinary people and invented characters and so yeah. on. And again, yeah. this is an area in which Howes excelled himself and went further than pretty much anyone had done before that point. Right? Yeah, and could also go to town. And, you know, with a portrait, you're still somewhat restricted by the conventions of the genre. It has to be representative. In these pictures, he really uh, allows his loose brushwork to go in full flow. And they start to look already a little bit like his very late paintings, you know. Right. Uh, But yes, these are invented characters. These are not people... Well, there's a few exceptions in the room where we actually know who they are um, and where the the sort of boundary between portrait and genre is is not so easy to draw. Right. But again, like he's brilliant at children, isn't he, Howes? And and there's there's a wonderful portrait in which we see a group of sort of giggling children, effectively. You feel their energy. Well, this is the thing with Franz Hals. There is a... I I describe it as a... a, You know, looking at his portraits or these genre pictures, it's almost like a visceral experience. You feel like you're eye to eye with someone who you could have met only half an hour ago on the street. Yeah. And that is something that he knows how to convey. So where Rembrandt can be beautifully wrought and sort of deep and, and emotional, perhaps even, with Franz Hals, we really recognise one of our own. Right. This might be a good point to bring up Kenneth Clark's comment about, what was it, sickening joyfulness yes. and, and odious skillfulness or whatever. That, that sort of prejudice against joy in pictures or, or a kind of, you know, that somehow it betrayed a lack of seriousness for him yeah. to depict positive well, emotions. Or I think that's right. I mean... F- for someone like maybe Kenneth Clark, steeped in the classics, this was a step too far. But it was uh, an annoying thing is that he also put it in be- beautifully into words, so it right. sticks. <laughs> but it is, um, uh, but it is something to do with that. I suppose this is perhaps too frivolous for some people and not serious enough. And annoyingly well painted is right. another way of putting it. I mean, it is so well painted. I think there may be something else at play there too with someone like Kenneth Clark and and the twentieth century in general, where. Uh, you know, virtuosity in painting is not necessarily something that was considered such a great asset. 
You know, if you think of what the developments are in 20th century art, virtuosity in painting is not necessarily what you were after. Right. I think that has something to do with it. Yeah. You know, the, for the, the fact that people loved, say, Piero della Francesca is because of its formal qualities. Yeah. And it looked like modern art, in a sense. Or rather, that's what they saw in it. With Franz Hals, a little bit more difficult because you almost what the impressionists saw in Franz Hals is no longer what, say, the 20th century sees in Franz Hals. Right. But the interesting thing to me about that is that while you're seeing expressions of joy there's no doubt about the precarious lives that these people are living it seems to me well, you know, there's an image of a sex worker over here that's you know. right and there's also an image of someone who uh, Malababa uh, by the way who is someone whose name we know right um, and she's called Barbara Klaas literally Malababa means mad babs essentially right and she was probably had mental health problems. Right. Uh, she certainly has a very sort of frenzied expression on her face. Indeed she does, yeah. And you can see why Franz Hals would have been drawn to that, because yeah. that is something that he could really go to town on in terms of his brushwork. We know in this case that she, she ended up in a workhouse and she was, you know, she probably was a little bit too much of, uh, of a problem in terms of either being a dangerous to herself or to others, right. and, and ended up in a workhouse, as did, by the way, one of Franz Hals' own children. Right. But then again, some of these other paintings may well have been his own children who posed. Right. We don't know for certain, but there are some sources that say that that did happen. There's definitely a sense in which we're looking at people that he has experienced. In yes, and, form, and you recognise yeah. the same model. I mean, there in, the, in our famous picture of the boy holding a skull mm. with his plumed hat, yeah. it's maybe a slight age difference, but it's the same young man. And then uh, again in the picture from the Guildhall Art Gallery in the far corner as well, mm. all the same model. Right. That idea that Howells was, I think the German term was used, was lustig. Yes. That he was able to depict people who enjoyed a drink because he himself enjoyed a drink or whatever. Yeah. Is, is that sort of a kind of mischaracterization through, a, through an eager biographer or is, is there some truth in that? Well, truth to use that word again is that we don't know, but it is <laughs> very likely to be a conflation of subject matter with his biography. There's not a shred of evidence, really, that Franz Hals was a drunk. Right. But the stories, nevertheless, are, are abound that that was the case. And, of course, some of the stories are really very colourful. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but this only remark that we have is in the word lustig is, comes from a, a German artist who, who reminisces about Franz Hals and says, well, in his early years, he led a you know, carefree life, more or less what he's saying. Right. Well, don't we all? And, and that <laughs> sort of it, in itself doesn't tell you very much. Could well be true, though, and may explain why his early works are not known. And right. that, or, or maybe he didn't do much. He was too busy drinking to be productive. Too busy to having a good, uh, lustig life. Yes. Right, exactly. We're in the last room now, ending with these remarkable late portraits. Like many artists, he has a very loose style. Again, there are cliches around loose handling in later life among artists, yeah. aren't there? To what extent do we know about his intentions with these late well, works I mean, and, the, and that looseness? The, the, the cliche that you always hear, and you hear it not just about Franz Hals, but you hear it about Titian, or sometimes by uh, perhaps about Rembrandt or Monet, you know, yeah, goes that on, they yeah. lose their eyesight, yeah. and because they get to a certain age, and, and Franz Hals did get very old. He's is is around eighty years old when he paints this. I don't believe that for a second. I mean, of course, his eyesight may not have been what it was before, but at the same time, this is a logical combination of what he's been doing all his life, you know. And it was no longer really fashionable, and yet it would have been more surprising had Franz Hals decided to all of a sudden become a very neat, fine painter. <laughs> yeah. Right. right, and so it makes complete sense to me. It also makes sense to me that people that he was famous for it, and that these were important people. You know, the regions of this old man's uh, almshouse, they were important people, and they still went to Franz Hals to have themselves portrayed, just like people still went to Rembrandt when that kind of painting was sort of out of fashion. Right, it, it's a measure of the fame of these artists that that still happens. And in this case, I think it's what is so extraordinary is, is the regions of the uh, old man's almshouse, all in dressed in sober black but beautiful white. The whites are extraordinary. He really goes to town yeah. on those. If you would zoom in on some of that and you would say, is that Manet? And you, you could say, well, maybe it is. You know, and it's that same. But what, what always strikes me about this painting is so extraordinary is that this, is this red knee yeah. in the lower right corner that you can have such a sea of black and white and yet decide to have one red block there. That's the mark of a great artist because it takes guts to do that. It really does. And, and it works. And without that, that picture would be considerably more dull. Yeah, and so it's a, it's an interesting choice, and similarly here, well, this painting from F Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge, an unknown sitter, an unknown sitter, but the paint is literally dripping down the canvas. 
you know, and he hasn't even bothered to correct it. I've already zoomed in with a photograph on this extraordinary oh, cuff here, yeah. which is just a kind of little mini blizzard of brushwork, right? It is, it's it is. just gorgeous. But it also tells you, this was quick work, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, the amazing thing, just like with the impression, is how do you keep track of your brushstrokes? Yeah. How do you keep track of the organisation of your paints when you're never at more than arm's length from the canvas or, mm. or yeah. panel? Mostly canvas in Franz Hall's case. Yeah. Uh, this is sort of what the show ends on, also because it's nice to show that Jasper Schade that was an interesting it's a complete dandy he's he's a yeah. portrait of Jasper Schade from the museum in Prague and we know quite a lot about him in fact we know that his uncle writes to his son i.e. the uncle's son to say don't spend as much money on your clothes as your nephew Jasper yeah. so he clearly was a dandy and <laughs> allowed Franz Hals uh, every opportunity to to show off his brushwork in the taffeta jacket that he's wearing, which is extraordinary. But I'd like to compare it and, and, and because that is an even later picture, and, and the exact opposite because that is modesty personified. Yes, a portrait it's, of a young woman yeah. whose identity we don't know. We but don't again, know who she is. Yeah. But she has such an enormously engaging smile, a slightly hesitant smile, but we recognize her out of a million, as it were. And again, she is someone we would see on the streets today. And, well, that's the greatness of Franz Hals, that he could create that almost visceral experience. Yeah, people said it right from the start, and they'll say yeah. it again now. Yeah, that's right. There's also a smaller room, which we haven't uh, actually been into, but, but because he achieved the same on very small scale. Extraordinary, the yeah, t- yeah. tiny portraits, but somehow manages the same vigor and the same looseness, yeah. even within that I tiny think just frame. Using the same technique, smaller brushes, you know, and and you get there too, and uh, so it's extraordinary. Yeah. So this is a show for painters who love painting, for anybody who just loves paint. Right? That's right. I mean, if there's a painter's painter, yeah. Well, Bart, thank you very much. Thank you. Franz Hals is at the National Gallery in London from the 30th of September until the 21st of January 2024. It then travels to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam from the 16th of February to the 9th of June 2024. And then it's at the Gemälde Galleria in Berlin from the 12th of July to the 3rd of November next year. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. As you heard, Franz Hals was born in Antwerp, and of course, the most famous artistic son of that city is Peter Paul Rubens. He's the subject of another major London show, Rubens and Women, at the Dulwich Picture Gallery. Among the many international loans to the exhibition is Three Nymphs with a Cornucopia of around 1625 to 1628, a work Rubens made, as was typical of his practice, with Franz Snyder's. It's likely that Rubens painted the figures while Snyder's painted the fruit and the animals. The exhibition is co-curated by Ben Van Beneden, director of the Rubens House, the former home and studio of Rubens in Antwerp, and Amy Oruk, an independent art historian and curator. I spoke to Amy about the painting, which you can see on the webpage and Instagram. Amy, in the catalogue, one of the descriptions of Rubens' approach to depicting women is about sensory delight and allegorical meaning. And it seems to me that the work that you've chosen here is a perfect summary of those kind of concerns that he was dealing with. Tell us more about it. Yes, for me, this beautiful, very colourful, lively work really sums up the argument that we're making throughout the course of the exhibition, which is looking at the place of women in Rubens's world, both real and imagined, but also his kind of idealisation of women and all of the positive qualities that they embody. So in terms of this image, it's called Three Nymphs with a Cornucopia. So tell us what it actually depicts. Um, Well, we see three nymphs, life-size. It's a very big painting, so it's actually just over two metres tall. So the women are the size of real women, and they're gathered around this central cornucopia, a big horn which is filled to bursting and overflowing with uh, fruit and uh, flowers. And then beside them on the ground, the fruits kind of tumble in, tumbling down onto the ground and a small monkey is being offered a branch which has got some apricots or plums on it and parrots are pecking at the top and the nymphs are typical kind of Rubensian women as uh, the kind of cliche that you would recognise, very uh, full-bodied, semi-clothed, very beautiful faces, their hair is elaborately dressed with pearls, one of them is fully clothed but the other two are kind of draped in uh, gossamer white drapery and then colourful swathes of fabric. So it's a really rich and vibrant image and a sensual image and a very celebratory image of women. 
Tell us more about the the sort of textual sources for it, because it relates to Ovid, right? So it's that classical subject for the time of a great mythological text translated into art. Exactly. So Rubens was extremely well read. Um, He'd had a very good education at the Latin school in Antwerp, and he adored uh, the classical writers Ovid and Virgil. And this is a story from the Metamorphoses, which uh, tells uh, the battle between the river god Akalu and uh, Hercules. And in the middle of the fight, Hercules rips one of Akalu's horns off, and the water nymphs come to the rescue by filling this horn with flowers and fruit. And it becomes a kind of sacred symbol of a cornucopia, it's called. So a, a sacred symbol of abundance. So cornu from the Latin for horn and copia, the word for abundance. So it is really a, a story of the healing powers of women, the triumph of women over war and uh, fighting. And we'll come on to the sort of significance of that in its time. I just want to close in on a couple of aspects of the sort of form of the work before doing that. You talked about, in a way, the kind of cliché of the voluptuous woman in Rubens's art. And it's interesting that in the catalogue, I know that it's said that that kind of understanding of Rubens's art is in some way a barrier to interpretation and so on, because it's become so ubiquitous when even mentioning Rubens, let alone writing about him or whatever, that it some way limits how his art can be understood. Can you explain more about that? Yes, it was a, a cliche that we wanted to take on and tackle with this exhibition, particularly In the English language, we have this word, the Rubenesque, which entered the Oxford English Dictionary at the beginning of the 19th century to refer to a voluptuous woman, sometimes used positively and sometimes used negatively, but nevertheless a cliché about Rubens. And the more that we looked at his images of women, the more that we realised there's not just one type of woman that he paints. His women are much more complex than that. And the body type that we assume to be a typical Rubensian woman is in fact made up of many different sources, both male and female, ancient and modern. So it's a far richer and more complex topic than this kind of quick cliche suggests. And that's something that we explore in the exhibition through a display of Rubens's drawings, through um, ancient sculptures that we know inspired him. So we have the wonderful Crouching Venus sculpture from the collection of um, King Charles, which was originally probably seen by Rubens in Mantua. So he, he travelled extensively through Italy and was really intoxicated by the sculpture that he encountered there. And it was this experience that shaped so profoundly how his nude bodies looked. At this time in history, it was very difficult to work from female life models. There were no kind of academies in Flanders. So it was really Rubens's early sojourn in Italy between 1600 and 1608 that he's shaping his ideal of the female body. And this is very much based on classical examples, uh, Greek and Roman sculpture. And he draws this and he imbibed this throughout his time in Italy. And then he comes back to Antwerp and he writes that he loves these sculptures, but he doesn't want his paintings to smell of stone. So he then goes on systematically searching for ways to animate this sculpture, to bring it to life and make it feel like real flesh, which is what he manages to achieve, particularly towards the end of his career. And throughout the course of the exhibition, we show both these drawings after ancient sculptures, but also drawings that may well have been done from life, influenced and informed by the women that he knew. And then we see in the final room where this uh, wonderful painting is hung, this kind of crescendo of what happens at the end of his career with all of these different sources that you you can kind of trace throughout his life coming to fruition. I love that phrase about smelling of stone. That's marvellous. The clothed figure. Is it right that it's a depiction of Ceres, the goddess? That's right, yes. But also, it strikes me that she does bear a resemblance to his first wife, Isabella. Is it identified with her or is is it just that actually he was drawing from multiple sources as ever, drawing from his own sketches and so on and, and fashioning a kind of ideal woman from those multiple sources? Yeah, exactly. I think it's the latter. It's very hard to be certain in, in many cases where there are depictions of his two wives. So he was he was married twice. Certainly his first wife, Isabella Brandt, is often used as a model for images of the Virgin in religious works. She dies in 1626, so possibly close to when this painting was made. But I don't think in this case that she is the model for the goddess. It's arguable. But then in 1630, he marries again to Helena Formont and her face 
face then does become quite recognisable in his mythological women. So there is this really interesting strand running throughout his paintings between his personal biography, his personal life. He drew and painted his family constantly and he loved doing that. That was his way of recording them and uh, very private, intimate images. But this kind of body of work inevitably affected and influenced his more public commissions. So there's wonderful interplay, as with many artists, between personal biography and then professional output. Before this painting, there is a wonderful sketch in the Dulwich Picture Gallery's collection, I think. Yeah, and, right, yeah. and I've seen that many times without actually having seen this painting much because it's in the Prado. I've seen it once, I think. But um, one of the interesting things about the sketch for this, of course, is that you can trace the way that the composition has evolved, the way that the characters that he's depicting have taken more of a centre stage or retreated back a little. Tell us more. Yes, so um, Rubens began using oil sketches following his his trip to Italy and he learned this as a kind of fundamental technique that he then relied on throughout his career. And almost all of his large-scale paintings have small oil sketches that accompany them. And these are really his first thoughts. He's mapping out his composition because he often worked at such great scale and produced so many complex decorative schemes. These oil sketches are really his essential way of uh, figuring out his composition before embarking on a large scale. And they're incredibly lively and incredibly vibrant. And you really see his mind and his hand working as one. He's drawing with his brush. And the sketch in the Dulwich Picture Gallery of the Three Nymphs is just a a magical image where you see them gathered around this central cornucopia. There's great energy between them. There's sort of circular motion around this cornucopia. It's a tighter framing than the Prado painting. So the Prado painting has more above and below the goddesses. And we also suggest that the patron in this case could have intervened and suggested changes because it was the oil sketches that would be shown to the patron for approval. And in this case, the patron was a very important woman to Rubens, the Archduchess Isabel Clara Eugenia, who was the ruler of the Southern Netherlands. And so she maybe suggested that the goddesses be altered slightly. Certainly in the final painting, uh, we see one of the nymphs has turned slightly more to the front, her arms lowered down. But crucially, there are additional little creatures included. So as I mentioned, the monkey makes an appearance being handed the bough of fruit and parrots are pecking at the fruit from the cornucopia. And this subtly changes the meaning of the painting. It becomes not just a celebration of plenty, but also a kind of celebration of charity and sharing this wonderful riches. Uh, Let's talk about Isabella Clara Eugenia, because she's a crucial figure in that period, because it's a time of the bloodiest of wars in in Europe, right? So the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, etc. There's so much terrible destruction in Europe at that time. It's a war of religion. It's a war of much more than that. But of course, this painting is a diplomatic painting, isn't it? Tell us more about that. It is, yeah. It contains a political message and one that very much Rubens and the Archduchess were aligned on, and that's a kind of call to peace. Rubens had worked for the Archduchess from 1609, that's when he's officially appointed her court painter, when she's ruling collaboratively with her husband, the Archduke Albert. Albert then dies in 1621, and Rubens and Isabel become much closer, and she's not just his court painter, she's also by this time her confidant, her advisor and her diplomatic representative. And Rubens is ideally placed for this role. He can speak six languages. He obviously has an incredible charm and tact and is able to travel on Isabel's behalf to the courts of Europe and really you know, engage in discussions on her behalf, pick up secrets and communicate them back to his female patron. And this painting was one of eight that the Archduchess sent to her nephew, Philip IV in Spain, by Rubens. And it seems much more than a coincidence, the fact that here we see in this painting women celebrating abundance and the riches of the world. And at this time, Isabel and Rubens are both trying very hard to negotiate for peace between England and Spain. And we know Rubens also arrived with letters from Gerbier, the agent to the English king, exploring ways to end the war. And he stays in Spain for eight months, during which time he becomes very close to Philip IV. So it's really another example, there are other ones throughout Rubens' career, of a female patron playing a fundamental role, uh, not just in introducing Rubens to other royal patrons, but also in using Rubens' intelligence and tact for her own benefit as well. 
And of course, it wouldn't have gone unnoticed to Rubens that here he is traveling to Spain to the court and bringing with him a great mythological subject based on Ovid. And there he is going to the Spanish court, which has abundance of Titians on this very subject. So as well as a kind of diplomatic mission for Rubens, it must have been an absolutely essential artistic mission. Yes, there is no doubt that this hugely stimulated him as an artist. We know that he copied, I think it's 22 of the works by Titian that were in the Spanish Royal Collection. And then he becomes Philip IV's favoured painter and is, wins a huge amount of work from it. He's then commissioned for the Torre de, de la Pareda decorations. And I think it raises his artistic game even higher that he can then spend time with these Titian paintings and you know many other great artists and be shown beside them and be trying his best to exceed them and excel above and beyond them, which is something that seems to have stimulated him throughout his life, kind of artistic uh, rivalry and, you know, trying to outdo what had gone before. And of course, a wonderful additional element is that it also hints at his legacy because he meets Velasquez at the Spanish court, who's then a young court painter, and inevitably Velasquez learns from him. Exactly, yeah. And I believe for a time they share a studio as well. So wouldn't it be fascinating to be a fly on the wall? Oh my God. <laughs> throughout that time. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a fundamental moment for, for Rubens' life and, and also for his ambitions, as a, not just as an artist, but as a diplomat and a courtier and you know, a nobleman as well, which is what he always aspired to be. Lastly, one of the things that I think this painting sums up in terms of the, your arguments is this idea of the women in Rubens' life and work as paragons of female agency, as it's put in the catalogue. That's both in terms of its patron and in terms of the depictions as you've described them. It's trying to give a perspective on women in Rubens that, again, transcends that cliche, right? Exactly. It transcends and, and complicates it. And we see Rubens is not a flatterer necessarily of women in his portraits. He's able to show people like Maria de' Medici really very realistically and recognisably. He portrays the Archduchess, again, not particularly in a flattering way. She's shown as a very stern looking uh, nun in the habit of a poor Claire nun. But for Rubens, women remain, I think, in his imagination and in his ideal, this kind of wonderful life-giving force that he understands uh, the complexities I think of what women are trying to achieve but also he sort of celebrates them for all that they can do and I'm sure that that is informed by the complex women that he knew in his own life his own mother was a a very strong powerful woman who basically raised him single-handedly and then his two wives were hugely influential in his his life as well so this is kind of following a trajectory that scholarship has been looking at for about 20 years looking again at these very important women in Rubens's life and we hope that the exhibition will open the public's eyes and whoever can come and see it to really think again about Rubens's women because they are wonderful and much more complicated creatures than you might at first assume. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you. Rubens and Women is at the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London until the 28th of January next year. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Alexander Morrison, and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Marina, Bart, and Amy. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.